everybody. Welcome to Sean and Lydia Happy Hour. Coming at you with another great episode. Guest on the show this week, Gail Grimes. <laughs> Let's cheers, everybody. Happy cheers. St. Peas. Welcome. Thank you very Happy much for having St. me. Happy St. Peas. Finally, after I've recorded 200 episodes of podcasts, I'm finally going to have the maid of honor, the best of the best, <laughs> Miss Gail Grimes. Cheers to you. Thank you for coming. Yeah, Thanks bottoms up, me, baby. Guys. Excited to chat with you. Yeah, we got a good topic. So last week, if you will recall, if you haven't listened to it, please dive back into it. It's a really good one. Lydia and I discussed the losses and loves of the unseen, unspoken losses of loves of COVID-19. So this week we have a professional that has been on the front lines since the very beginning. So Lyd, uh, let's go ahead and lead the conversation. Yeah, so a little mini-sode for you all today. I just thought it would be a nice opportunity to speak with someone who actually got to kind of experience this, yeah, from the front lines as a healthcare worker, um, which is Gail here with us today. So just to kick it off, Gail, could you tell the listeners at home, like, what's your official title? What's your Yeah, absolutely. So I am a registered nurse. I achieved that certification back in January of 2020. So just right before the pandemic kicked off. Um, to give you a little bit of background about me, um, during the beginning of the pandemic, up until about June, I was working in an outpatient clinic setting, so a little more removed. Um, and then in June, I went ahead and switched over and started working in one of the bigger ICUs. So that's like an intensive care unit at a level one trauma center in Des Moines. Wow. So that's awesome, Gil. Thank you. And I think I speak for all of the listeners at home. Thank you for your service. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, literally, because it's been so crazy. Yeah, what a year to start, right? (laughs) It's definitely been like a wild time to start in the ICU. But, um, you know, pandemic aside, it's um, been clear to me that this is definitely my passion, no matter what's kind of thrown at me and still happy to be there and definitely going to keep chugging along in this career path. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it like it definitely fits you. And I'm like so proud of you <laughs> and, Thanks, I, and I just think it's awesome to for anyone to be able to find what they really care about in life and Gil you're just a thought here like your mom is a nurse and so was your grandmother right yeah absolutely so my mom's a respiratory therapist which is like pretty close to nursing um real similar job and then my grandmother was a nurse as well um and actually worked her entire career at the same hospital that I'm at right now in the yeah, emergency awesome. room so yeah that's super cool so a long line of uh, healers that's for sure yeah so take us back to March 2020, like kind of when all this crap started. <laughs> a year ago, yeah. Absolutely. So at this time, as you kind of remember, I said I was working in an outpatient clinic. Um, it was a gastroenterology clinic. So, you know, pretty far removed from this respiratory virus and illness. And it was an interesting time in healthcare. And I think I can kind of speak across the board, especially in the state of Iowa. Um, kind of what we saw is we shut everything down. So we canceled those elective procedures that everybody heard about. We weren't doing colonoscopies. Um, We didn't have clinic patients um, face-to-face in the clinic with us. We were doing a lot of virtual visits. Um, So it was kind of a weird time in Iowa because we're in this lull. Um, There weren't a lot of patients coming in. We had Mm -hmm. canceled a lot of the stuff. A lot of our workload had been severely cut down because we were kind of waiting on that, like, first wave or, like, the chaos of of COVID to hit us. You know, we knew it was coming, but it hadn't started quite yet. So March was really an interesting time because... You know, the world was looking at it as us being in a pandemic, but frankly, I was pretty bored at work without a right. lot to do. Wow, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, like, at that time, do you did you feel, like, what was the overall feeling, like, in your clinic? Like, were people, do you did you feel afraid? Did you feel calm? Did other people 
Just what was the overall sentiment? Yeah. So um, once again, really weird times. Um, I would say most people were relatively nervous about what was coming down the pipe and what was coming. Um, There was a lot of fears all around, especially for those of us who were not in an inpatient setting and not dealing with the front lines of COVID at that point yet, (laughs) that we were going to be reallocated to another area of work. And a lot of people actually were at this point. Um, For instance, my mom normally works outpatient. She went back and was picking up inpatient hospital hours to help them out. So a lot of fear of reallocation and working in an area you weren't necessarily trained or comfortable with. Um, But then, like I said, also this weird feeling of like kind of boredom because we didn't have a lot of work to do. So kind of in between with anxiety, but a little bit of boredom and just kind of like waiting for what was coming. Um, So that was definitely one of the more unique feelings I've ever had at at work in my career. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that the curriculum is going to shift a little bit because I mean nursing and I can medicine in general is like you're studying the history of what has been done the lot learn like it's science right you're learning and of failures you're learning of the successes do you think the curriculum is going to shift more toward percentage wise to more about pandemics after this last year um, I definitely th- hope that it's going to become more of a focus. Um, I know that personally, I have a lot of, you know, we could do an entire podcast episode about my yeah. concerns about the healthcare industry <laughs> and the education behind it. Um, I think both medical schools and nursing schools have a lot that they need to work on and change. I'm hoping they're going to adopt some of what we've learned during this time to kind of shift and change and teach people how um, to, to deal with a pandemic, but I don't necessarily hold a lot of confidence in that. Okay. Um, once again, just kind of hoping for a whole shift in that educational industry um, in a lot of different areas, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, so we kind of got like the intro of how you were feeling in the beginning and kind of what was going on. At what point did you feel like things like were be- were getting bad and why? Absolutely. So um, I felt like things were really starting to get bad as soon as I started in a hospital setting. Um, I just was really getting that firsthand view of it. You know, my very first day at work, um, we not only did what they call day one training, which is kind of all that HR garbage that you have to do. But immediately on that day one training, they brought us into a room and had us fitted for, you know, the N95 mask, made sure we had a papper, like basically gave us all the equipment that we needed. And they, they made it very clear that those that was going to be needed within right. a week. You know, you were going to start being hands-on with patients. And that mm-hmm. was kind of reality Because they needed you right away. Absolutely. And then um, just uh, touring the unit my very first day of work, looking around. And um, you can tell walking through an ICU which patients have COVID and which don't because those COVID patients, the doors are closed. There's like a big sign on the door that says like precautions. There's a, a basket of gowns outside you have to put on. Everybody's equipment is out. And just seeing what an overwhelming percentage of our ICU was COVID positive patients. Um, that really hit home for me because I knew that there were some, but I didn't really have a grasp of exactly how many there was. So that yeah. was pretty astonishing just to walk from room to room and see just how many people were were sick with COVID. Yeah. And that's like incredible too, because like to really envision that and like, yes, that's like what you were trained for and that's your job. And you, you chose to do that, of course, in service of humanity but still like isn't that scary yeah absolutely you didn't Um, know for sure like even with ppe like am i gonna get this like am i gonna infect my family like what's gonna happen like you just didn't really fully understand probably 100 percent. absolutely and i had done my like they call it a preceptorship it's your last semester of nursing school and then another stint in the icu before that so i'd actually had some icu experience before this job um but 
Um, it was different. There was no COVID that existed at this time. So it was really scary to kind of face that unknown. I, th- I thought I knew what I was coming into, but then there was this whole new um, situation that I had to adapt to. Yeah, it's honestly scary. And yeah, like I said, I, I, it's hard for me to even <clears throat> imagine, I guess, just being in that situation, like especially in the beginning when like Sean and I were talking last week on the episode one about in the beginning, it's like people didn't even fully understand how this was even being spread, frankly. like <laughs> Absolutely. And there's so much like caution and concern with that. And that's really been a big deal in the hospital because there's different levels of precaution that you're going to use for different COVID patients. And, and maybe you guys have heard of some of this through the news, but like a basic COVID patient who's just getting oxygen through like that little nasal tube or what's called a nasal cannula, um, supposedly they can only spread it through droplet, which would mean you just need that basic surgical mask and a face shield. However, somebody on like a ventilator, um, they become airborne because the the method of action of the ventilator literally is spraying the patient's secretions Ugh. into the air and aerosolizing oh, it is what we call that. So just being really cautious about what kind of precautions you're using with which patient, you know, really wanting to make sure you are protecting yourself. Personally, I just for some reason, and I can't explain this, you know, I'm not trying to be brave. I personally haven't had any fear about getting COVID and being sick myself. Um, You know, I consider myself a relatively healthy person. I think I would come out all right if I ever did get it. Right. Um, It was just contracting it and then spreading it to those that I love. Yeah. And that just comes with your knowledge of like your study and your knowledge of the situation. Like we, we don't know all the above, you know, and we don't aren't dealing with it daily. So I think that like, yeah, you having the knowledge and your study has kind of given you like that freedom to not be so scared and fear of getting it, even though you're working directly with people that have it. Like, Absolutely. And just knowing that, you know, the the bright side of the hospital is that we're testing every single patient that comes through our doors. That's Mm -hmm. just standard policy. Mm -hmm. So I know with 100% certainty whether that person that I'm taking care of has COVID or not. And so that like provides you a little bit of reassurance because you're not interacting with all these strangers who are unknown. You know, I'm protected every time somebody's COVID positive or if they're negative, I'm aware of that. And that gives you some comfort. Um. Yes and no. We've kind of changed our testing throughout the um, throughout the pandemic and things have changed a lot as we've gotten more information. So that's kind of a, a longer story, but some rapid testing, some formal PCR testing. How long does it take to fully equip yourself with PPE? <laughs> that's definitely one of the most um, obnoxious things about working with COVID. I hate <laughs> to say it's obnoxious because it is important, but to fully put on, so I'll kind of describe the process from you to top to bottom. Um, when I take care of a COVID positive patient, I wear what's called a papper hood. Um, that's that full, like nun looking hood that covers your head and your face. Um, and then it attaches to a belt pack that circulates fresh filtered air through it um, that filters out the COVID particles. So step one, um, you go ahead and put your papper hood on, hook it up to your belt, um, turn it on. Um, the first time you do that during the day, you actually have to do like a series of thorough checks of the belt that filters the air. So you're checking to make sure the pressure's right. You're checking to make sure you have enough battery life for what you want to do, checking to make sure the filter isn't full of dust. So there's like an extra five minutes in that. So (laughs) getting that papper hood on is probably five minutes. Um, from there, I'm going to put on my first set of gloves. So I'll put on another pair of gloves. That's like 30 seconds. Um, after that, I'm going to put a gown on that goes over the backside, like the the belt pack on the papper, and also goes with the cuffs over your first pair of gloves. So that's like another 30 <laughs> seconds. And then you're going to put tie that behind your back and behind your neck. Um, and then you're going to put a second pair of gloves over that first pair that covers the cuff. So you're kind of oh. double gloved. Um, and then from that point, you're ready to go. Um, 
definitely adds a lot of time to your <laughs> yeah. day considering um, not just that you have to do that every time you go into the patient's room, but that you have to consciously think, okay, I need to remember every single piece of equipment I need to take into this patient's room right now. Mm-hmm. If I forget like a medication or I forget the syringe that I need or something, I have to like stand there and like knock on the door and like flag one of my coworkers down oh. to be like, hey, I'm so sorry. Can you like hand me this thing I forgot? So there's like this whole other level to it that just takes so Jeez. much more time than, and than a typical patient. it's filling up your brain capacity too. Yeah. Like you need to be concentrating on Absolutely. Like, healing the patient Absolutely. and like helping them. And then once you're in the PPE, it's, it's impossible to hear. So because that fresh filtered air is like going through the hood, you have oh. this fan noise. It's like whirring super loud next to you. It's really hard to hear in the room. Most of the rooms are also what we call negative airflow. So they cycle air out. That adds another level of noise. So it's super loud in these rooms too, which is um, making care delivery definitely more difficult. Uh, yeah, I think at the like May or something, you sent Lydia like an image of what you put on every day and we're just like, it's a dang spacesuit. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's definitely very close to being a spacesuit and it's a lot of... Um, just a lot of effort to put that on every time. And, you know, fortunately, I work for a hospital system that has provided us with adequate PPE. I never felt like I was shorted, definitely had what I needed. Um, but I know that's not the case for everybody. And I, I really feel for those healthcare workers that were having to fight to get what they needed to feel safe and protected. So. Yeah, geez. That's that's another layer of the whole situation. Like how, it's been, how that information and knowledge has been distributed in the media is also another layer. Like, I, I know this might might be getting us off course a little bit, but how how has the media overall done uh, in communicating the dangers and what to do for COVID? Because I feel like we are very fortunate to have you. I think anytime Lydia has, has had any like fears or like a uh, misunderstanding of, or trying to understand an aspect of the pandemic more, I think that we have you to go to, right? And not everybody has a Gale, right? So yeah, so I think the media portrayal has been really mixed. Um, and it's hard to say it's neither accurate or inaccurate. I think locally, the media has done all right. Um, you know, our COVID-19 experience here in Des Moines, Iowa is vastly different from the COVID-19 experience in LA County or New York, New York. Those places were hit so much more astronomically hard than we were. I really have to like stop and remind myself how fortunate we are here um, simply because our population density is so much lower than those areas. We were never going to get to the levels that they were in the pandemic. Um, But I think the media portrayal has been decent. Um, I think that I have no shame about using scare tactics. And I think they really should have upped that because obviously not enough, um, in my opinion, not enough American citizens have taken this as seriously as they should be. Right. Yeah, so I mean, Iowa, though, in the last like few months of the pandemic was very high on the list of per capita uh, infections, per capita even uh, hospitalizations. So I think that well, I'd like to get into the aspect of uh, hospitalizations and bed counts. Yeah, so um, definitely during our peak, once I was like seeing, um, you know, that first like hands on experience when I first was really working on my own and really started to work in the ICU after I had gotten through my training point, um, we were really pushed for numbers. So um, there was a number of weeks where our traditional ICU in the hospital was 100% full. Mm-hmm. Um, we then went to open a number of additional units to kind of handle the surge and handle those numbers. So 
we are fortunate enough that that Unity Point Des Moines Methodist Hospital um, actually immediately following the Ebola epidemic created and built this new wing of the hospital called the Flex Unit. It's a specialty built wing. It's very infection controlled. You know, they built it with Ebola in mind, which is incredibly more contagious than even COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were prepared and that was only actually six additional beds. So it's not that big of a unit. And so we got to a point where our traditional ICU is full. Also, the flex unit was full. So then we moved on. Okay, what other areas of the hospital can we take over? So they were all we COVID patients. Yes. That's well, incredible. for the most part. I mean, yeah. we we our ICU is like built into sections, and there was um, one to two sections that we maintain clean at all times. So basically, saying that no infectious patients were allowed in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for the protection of like some of the more high risk non infectious right. patients, but. So we had the ICU full, we had the flex unit full. So we were looking at other areas of the hospital we could use. And there's actually been a big decrease in pediatric hospitalizations this year, simply without kids being in school and being at home more. They're not, you know, those little germ spreaders aren't rubbing snot all over each other at daycare this year. So there's a lot less pediatric hospitalization. So we actually closed the pediatric intensive care unit and moved all of them to a lesser used wing of the hospital and then also took over the pediatric intensive care unit Mm -hmm. for adults with COVID. Um, Then we opened a fourth unit, (laughs) another pediatric unit, um, and then um, kind of took that over and added some more patients there. So during our surge, I mean, we had three additional entire wings that we ended up having to open just to accommodate that. And, you know, thankfully, we had the beds. You know, we weren't at this point doubling down in patient rooms. We all have single rooms, which is so important for patient recovery and privacy. Um, So we hadn't had to double down on beds or anything or put people in hallways, anything Mm -hmm. crazy like that. Um, But, yeah, definitely busting at the seams. Did you have a lot of traveling nurses or sorry, what are they called? Like contract yeah, travel nurses. nurses. Yeah. So we definitely had a handful of travel nurses like called in to help out. Um, that's always an interesting area too, because they're vetted and they do have their RN licensure, but you can never really guarantee how much experience they have. So when you do get these travel nurses, you have to kind of start off by giving them the easiest assignments just to make sure that they're going to be safe and do safe for you. And, you know, they don't mm-hmm. have an orientation period like like a traditional hiree just does. thrown right in. So they're thrown right in, you know, it, and I hate to like be so judgmental of these people. But what if they're like a drug seeking person that's going to steal meds from your facility? What if they're actually a terrible nurse that's like not taking good care of their patients? You have to go in these easy assignments and like keep a close eye on them so they're valuable um but only in so much sense yeah that makes sense you're not working with them daily you don't have that camaraderie you don't have that like i know jenny will or james will be able to like you know we'll be handle this level of a patient and and i i do want to make it very clear that every single traveler i had the opportunity to work with at methodist in the icu was phenomenal and i loved working with them so i don't i don't want to make it seem like there are some really terrible travelers we were very fortunate you just don't know that until you start to work with them i think that's just normal human behavior absolutely (laughs) you have to build a rapport well and especially when lives are are at stake you know it's truly a human life that's at stake so you have to be a little cautious yeah no that makes sense i think that that's a good point to even think about i didn't even like you know you have to fully understand that teammate camaraderie very big absolutely yeah and we've been so fortunate in that covid i mean covid has impacted my family but like no well i mean i don't i honestly i don't know my great aunt did pass away this year and it is possible that it could have been due to covid but just that's not like a confirmed thing 
Um, but other than other than that, like we've been very fortunate in that everyone's remained relatively healthy. But like, and that's why sometimes it feels like such an abstract thing, right? Because like I know I trust you know scientists and I trust doctors and I trust uh, healthcare workers, and obviously the pandemic is a very real thing. But because it's so abstract and it hasn't like like I haven't been sick, my immediate family hasn't been sick. It's like sometimes hard for you to wrap your mind around it. So to hear you talking about like we opened up this wing, we opened up this wing, like I was like here, you know, it like really makes it real. And I think it's like really important for people to, you know, hear your story, Gail, because Absolutely. for some people, I'm sure there's many people who feel like me. It's just like, it's so abstract. Like, yes, I've taken it seriously, but it's like, what the freak is the pandemic? You know what I mean? Certainly. And, and I think, you know, as much as we really talk about numbers, obviously numbers have been vastly important in the media reporting and just how seriously people have taken this pandemic. It's 100% what we rely on is really numbers. Um, but numbers aren't something that really affect human emotion. They don't give you um, that emotional pull, that emotional draw. Mm-hmm. Is that a number is a number. Um, there's also like a, an extensive amount of research that says that once a number gets beyond a certain size, that the human brain just can't really right. comprehend it. So, you know, we're looking at a half million Americans dead or greater than that. Um, That doesn't really register anything in your brain. But sitting there firsthand watching someone, frankly, die of COVID and and seeing that firsthand is a completely different experience. Yeah. Totally. Can you tell us about that day one? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the most memorable experiences. days for me at work was was my very first day in the ICU. Um, I, you know, obviously you're not working on your own at that point. I was working with another nurse and and the patient assignment that we had for that day was um, um, a a middle-aged woman infected with COVID-19. She had been on the ventilator for almost four weeks at that point, which is a very, very long time to be on a ventilator. You know, if you're looking at influenza or other like typical things people are going to be on a ventilator for like a week is about what you're going to see. So four weeks Mm. is astronomical. Um, But that's pretty run of the mill for COVID. So we were at a point where we really had to sit and ask, is this person going to be able to get off this ventilator and continue to live their life? And oftentimes at that point, the answer, frankly, is no. Um, They're just not going to be able to recover or survive. So can you real quick, I want to jump in because this is something I learned through conversations with you over the course of this last year. But can you explain what that even means? Like when I think of a ventilator, I don't really, I guess I didn't understand like the impacts of the human body and like how that does like decrease your ability to like. Uh, or your chances of living, like absolutely. being put on so, something that's like breathing for you. Absolutely. So a ventilator really is a last resort for, you know, breathing instability. Are you not effectively breathing on your own well enough to oxygenate your blood? Um, then you've got to go on the ventilator. So what that involves, just to kind of give you a quick little rundown, is we take this big metal, it looks like a... Um, a hook and we jam it in your mouth. We hopefully don't break any of your teeth while we're doing it, although it is common for people to have teeth broken. We then pull your throat forward, down and back. Um, I don't personally do this. This is usually a physician that does this. And then we take a tube that's probably about eight to nine inches long. Um, It's about the diameter of like a large like bubble tea straw, if you're familiar with that. Um, And we poke that down and we hopefully hit your lungs the first try. Um, Sometimes it does actually go into your stomach and then they have to try and try again. Um, And then once that tube is in your throat, it's securely fastened to your face um, and then it's hooked up to the actual ventilator. Um, The biggest problem with a patient being on extended long-term ventilation is when you and I are breathing normally, we're actually using the vacuum space between the wall of our lungs and our ribs to 
pull outwards and expand. A ventilator pushes air into your lungs to expand them. So you have this huge risk of trauma. Um, if you're pushing too much or pushing too hard, you get what's called barotrauma in your lungs. So huge injury to your lungs. Most people have some degree of lung injury from being on a ventilator. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I said, it's last, well, second to last resort for, for breathing. Um, and can be, you know, very invasive and very harmful to the person. But if that's what it takes you to live, that's usually what most people will take. So did you have a lot of patients come out of that? Um, you know, some. Um, I, I don't want to say that the ventilator survival rates were really great. Um, they certainly are pretty poor. Um, but we there are some success stories. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the younger patients were able to come out of it and do all right. Um, but for the most part, most people, especially middle to later age or morbidly obese individuals, just frankly weren't. Um, we got mm-hmm. to that four-week mark that I was kind of talking about. We'd have those conversations with the family. Um, and then oftentimes that conversation with the family saying, we're going to do what's called comfort measures only. Um, yeah, my dad was on a ventilator when he got sepsis in his blood. And when I walked in, you just I crumbled. Like, you know, seeing your father like that, it's just like... He's so helpless. He's, yeah. he's, you know, he's a big, he's a big, strong man in your mind. He's like your, your protector, your, you know, your dad growing up. And then you see him like whittled down to like this little, this guy that's like, can't even breathe on his own. So like, yeah, I mean, you see Absolutely. that all day. And it's hard to like find the humanity in those people. Um, it, it doesn't really look like a human being anymore, which is an interesting perspective. You have to remind yourself they're a living person, but to oftentimes it, it, it just feels more like that's a body laying there mm-hmm. that you're treating. Yeah. That makes sense. So I kind of wanted to touch a little bit more on just that first day and that patient that I had. Um, So um, basically, we had that conversation with the family. You know, we don't think she's going to recover from this. This is probably going to be um, non-survivable for her. So at that point, the family did make the decision to go ahead and um, we call it comfort measures only. Sometimes it's called a compassionate extubation. So extubation is when they pull the tube out of your throat. Um, terminal extubation is another word that some people use. Basically, we're going to remove the ventilator. Chances are that that patient is going to die probably within sometimes it's two minutes. Sometimes it takes them a couple hours. Um, so just making the decision to remove the ventilator and allow na- nature to take its course. So that was my very first day in the unit. Um, <sighs> did a compassionate extubation on my patient and um, family actually cannot be in the room during that because they're obviously at risk for catching COVID. <sighs> so just family outside the room looking through the glass while myself and my preceptors sat there and held her hand while she passed away, you know, and that was really when I was like, okay, this is very real. You know, this yeah. is a, this is a pandemic. <sighs> yeah. That's making me a little bit I'm emotional. Sorry, <laughs> I think it's yeah, important wanted- for people to know the reality of it because I don't think people have taken this seriously at all. So if I can yeah, help influence so people to realize it, it's real. That's it important. really is. And I wanted to ask you if there was any particular story or experience that stood out to you and maybe that's, that's it. Definitely <laughs> it. Yep, that's definitely the one that I'll remember for the rest of my life. Right. Right. For sure. <laughs> so um, kind of uh, to ask you a couple more questions to sort of wrap up this conversation. Thank you again, Gail. Like, it's really incredible to hear like a firsthand experience. Uh, I wanted to ask you what has been the most surprising thing of the pandemic, good or bad, like yeah. socially or, you know, work wise. I think maybe the most surprising part of the pandemic to me um, would be just that healthcare workers are people too. 
I'm going to elaborate on this a little bit, um, but just that there's such a variety of healthcare workers. You know, I, for the most part, work with a lot of very amazing people, but there are coworkers that I remember in the midst of the pandemic, you know, things are full bore. We're seeing a lot of people dying. Our hospitals are full Mm -hmm. that are still, frankly, going out and partying (laughs) and like just taking irresponsible decisions and, and doing things that I didn't necessarily support. And I don't want to shame these people because they, you know, obviously healthcare workers have taken a ton of shit this year and it's been an incredibly hard year for them and and people need to do what they need to do to process. But that really kind of surprised me when I first started working in the hospital, just that there's a variety of responses, you know, not everybody's on the same page um, and that um, it really reminded me how politicized this entire experience has been because even those people who are seeing people die firsthand, seeing the effects of the pandemic, let their political feelings and beliefs influence them to continue to make bad choices outside of work. Right. And don't you think it might also be, though, too, not just political and just that, like, he, the human mind only has the capacity for so much. Like, yeah. And that, like, at some point you just have to say, fuck it. And, like, exactly. I'm going to go, and like, let loose said, for a couple you know, hours. I, I'm, I'm exposed at work every day. Like, this totally. is already a thing. You know, what additional harm am I doing by going out in public and, and doing this? Screw it. I want to go have fun. Like, I'm already exposed every day. But... In my opinion, they were exposed every day, so they should definitely not be going out into public yeah. at the risk of spreading it to others. But like I said, um, I agree with you. But like, a, I also see, like, I can also empathize. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, I can also so, see where they're coming from. <laughs> that was really surprising to me. Um, but in that same kind of um, vein of thought, just um, I was surprised what teamwork and camaraderie there is at work you know i i go to work every day and i i do see people die often i i see a lot of terrible things we experience a ton of hurt but like i have fun at work like we have a lot of fun yeah. like i love laughing with my coworkers. like i have a really good bond with them i feel like it's like great environment wow. where we are all very connected and i think that trauma connects people totally so yeah. you were um, fortunate enough not to get infected yep. like, like thank god right because you, you have a well uh, boyfriend that lives with you that had does not have to, in, to interact with many people so that would have just sucked to have to like somehow figure that out does he go stay with his sister you know like, yeah absolutely and uh but did you did you have a lot of co-workers did you do you have co-workers that were infected um and, i there certainly were co-workers who were infected um but you I, can't say if it was directly from, yeah that's right? that's such the challenge of it is um you know and, and hr did try and manage that and see if they could figure out you know were you exposed without proper protection on like what were you doing but a lot of people that were infected you know they're still going grocery shopping they're still doing this they're still mm-hmm. doing that so it's impossible to pinpoint where right. that infection came from which was also made it interesting for work paying for your infection and your time off. Um, right. There's a lot of controversy surrounding that yeah. and and whose responsibility it was. Mm-hmm. You brought up the Ebola virus, which was another pandemic that we've dealt with relatively recently compared to the 1918, what was it, like Spanish flu or something? Like other, Yeah, 1918 mass- is the Spanish flu. Yep. Yeah. And so I kind of wanted to just lean in here at the tail end here, lean in toward more of the, like the leadership First of all, of course, like the the Trump administration had their many fallouts, and I'm I'm sure just knowing you, like, uh, what do you think overall? How do you think that message that our previous president delivered to the to the United States to his people? And do you think that like uh, the way that he kind of like was hiding numbers and all that, like how how did that affect you day to day? Like, did you see 
Did you see an increase in, after he would come on and say some spit some gab about this absolute BS? Or I mean, I I don't think that there is necessarily any correlation in the numbers or the severity that I saw related to it. However, okay. the one sentiment that I want to make completely clear about this entire situation is that the government leadership for coronavirus is a perfect analogy and example of the fact that this nation and many other nations in the world value capitalism and money-making over human lives. And that's not just a pandemic factor. Um, that's evident in the fact that we don't have socialized medicine in this country um, and a thousand other ways. That's evident in the, in the you know, Chinese youth that die in factories to create, mm -hmm. you know, disposable goods for Americans. Frankly, this is just the perfect example of our value of money over human lives. Mm -hmm. And if I want to see anything change in my lifetime that's it right i guess more specifically trump did dismantle the pandemic task force yep right in his first year and Absolutely. then two years later we're or three or so we're dealing with the our the worst pandemic in the last hundred you yep. know so that's just uh, right there like come on what the hell yeah. like i mean i yeah. think we could have a whole episode about it honestly about sure. how the past year basically so ironically put on blast so many problems in society like from black lives matter to what you just alluded to gail it's just insane like to deal with black lives matter protesters they did despicable violence to the protesters you know what i mean yep. like to deal with them and to your point gail it just like puts our entire medicine and capitalism totally on blast this past year and i think like a lot of truths have been undeniable anymore like even to like the common everyday person like you can no longer just sit back and say that that like x thing is not real like because it's just been flash in our face it's like are we living in a simulation i'm absolutely <laughs> curious to see the difference from if you were to look at the number of Americans that supported socialized medicine in this country exactly one year ago and compare it today, I'm going to think that there's probably yep. going to be an astronomical increase totally. in that. Um, I, I have spoken to people, you know, either patients at work, their family members or coworkers that are like, well, yeah, actually, we probably mm -hmm. do need to take care of people. Um, yeah, it's become evident evident like you cannot deny it anymore that public health is a personal matter. Yep. <laughs> yep. For everybody. For yep. everybody. And, and even much more so those disenfranchised in the United States, whether that's minorities. Um, that's definitely something I saw during the COVID epidemic is while I took care of a number of Caucasian individuals during my time in the hospital, most of the patients that we took care of mm -hmm. were Latino, um, were black, um, were of some sort of minority mm -hmm. race um, because they were those people who were forced to be exposed mm -hmm. by their financial status in the world. Um, and all kinds of things, health, and just nutrition the in general. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So that's something interesting that that really happened during the pandemic. So I think on the flip side of Trump, a North Star, of course, for Lydia and I was you, but Fauci as well. Doctor Fauci, he's mm -hmm. he was the lead sign, uh, lead doctor uh, for our country, and he has been through many presidential administrations. How do you think that he did overall in communicating the? importance and the actual severity of this pandemic. So I actually, you know, like a lot of healthcare workers, he is kind of a hero. I think he did a fantastic job and not just communicating the dangers of it, but he had to really ride this incredibly fine line um, because I think that Fauci, something else he worked incredibly hard to do during this time during the pandemic was keep his job. Um, and, and that's not easy to do when you are so divisively, um, 
your opinion is so incredibly different from the administration that you're working for. You know, obviously, he had his differences between the Trump administration and just working to educate the American public, keep them safe, but also keep his job so he could continue to do that. You know, had he quit or had he been fired, he would not have had nearly the stage or the impact that that he required to save American lives. So right. I think he's like truly a hero in that sense. And he didn't turn it into some drama fest. He simply provided the, the facts, the mm-hmm. information and told people how to keep themselves safe, free from a relative amount of drama for what could have gone down. Yeah, I think that he was the subject of of quite a few fun memes this last last year yep. at, where he's just like shaking his head or he's just like laughing at something that someone else said that's, uh, that has no science background. So, yep. awesome. Yeah, so thank you again, Gail. I mean, just kind of to wrap up on, on a higher note here, I wanted to touch on, and, and maybe for everyone <laughs> speaking today, um, what are you most looking forward to now that things are slowly slipping back into normalcy, like post-vaccine, like this summer? You know, this summer we're looking at possibly, at least in the state of Iowa, for a lot of adults to be vaccinated and things to be... I know, obviously, we still had have to adhere to certain precautions, but a lot more normal than it certainly was last year. So what are you most looking forward to? Yeah. So personally, what I'm most most looking forward to is going and sitting down in a restaurant and eating a meal. Um, I have not been inside of a restaurant since approximately one year ago. Mm -hmm. Um, We went to Hessen House one year ago, and that was the last time I was in a restaurant. (laughs) Um, I'm definitely looking forward to that. That's like a big part of Trey and I's relationship is like date night at a restaurant. Haven't done that in a whole entire year. Um, So just having the freedom to do those most basic, Mm -hmm. normal life functions. I don't care if I have to wear a mask for the rest of my life. That doesn't bother me. Um, I just want to be able to do a couple little normal functions here and now and and just feel like I have a bit more freedom. Yeah. Are you going to go to Hinterland? Um, well, it sold out in 10 minutes. Yeah. So, uh, 5,000 people on the oh, bus. Oh, geez, it did. It, it, wow. Yeah, it did. Um, so I, I really am hopeful and feeling positive that it'll be safe to attend that kind of function at that time. But I don't know for sure. Um, a lot could change between now and then. You know, we thought we knew that this pandemic was going to be over by the end of summer last year. And that clearly wasn't right. the case. So um It'd be cool if I could go. I'm not really holding my breath, partly because of ticket availability, but also just because who knows what's going to happen between now and then. I yeah. hope I really hope things are continuing on the trajectory they're on right now, but I'm going to hold out on doing those things until I know for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, vaccinations are high and mighty, and two of the three people in the room have at least had one. Yep. So I'm hopefully going to get mine here April 5th here in Iowa, Governor Reynolds. Uh, who we didn't even get into and we don't need to this episode. Maybe we can have you back on, Gil. But uh, yeah, I think that there's a lot of uh, shifting that can happen with the COVID and it could shift to be fight this vaccine, right? Like that's just how that's just generally how these work, right? Yeah. Yeah. I have to believe otherwise, though. Like, frankly, for me, like it's been so hopeful, like. And I, I think you and I obviously have different philosophies, Gil, because like you're still like kind of waiting to see even for something like Hinterland. But like we already have like we already have tickets to things this summer. Like I'm ready if like especially like outdoor things like for me, I'm most looking forward to a normal shit, <laughs> like just being able to have you guys over. And we, you know, we used to host like so just so many different things here. It just seems like always having people Our over and like I really party- Two years ago, had 50 people. Yeah, like I just missed that. I just missed the freedom of being able to be like, I want everyone, like we love so much to just like 
have that welcoming energy and like seeing everyone. <laughs> and it's been wonderful to have you guys, but I just like, we need to bring everybody back into the fold kind of a thing. And I'm just ready to have that back in my life. And then B is just live music. Like that was a huge part of yep. our lives. And like, I have to get back to some shows this summer and I'm really looking forward to Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for being on the episode, Gail and got to have you on again. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers to you. Cheers. Thank Thanks you for so having much. me guys and yeah. letting me rant about my work life you hardly ranted you spoke intelligently <laughs> and great conversationalist as i said so thanks for joining us this week for episode two of sean and lydia happy hour yeah special guest gail grimes check out our follower who we follow on instagram if you'd like to check out her pictures of her awesome kitty cats and whatnot so yeah cheers happy st patrick's, happy st. Happy st. Happy st. Patrick's day. day guys be safe <laughs> wear a mask love y'all